Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Hmm. And we are back. Back on track. Back in black. Back in black. We were never off track, and we, neither one of us is currently wearing black. But I'm wearing black. Where? Pants. Oh. My pantaloons. Well, good job. <laughs> I usually am wearing something black, and today I'm not. Wow. Here we are. I know. For all of our uh, listeners, sorry that we don't have any way of showing you. <laughs> well, I did a load of laundry the other day, and I was folding things that were mine mm-hmm. out of the dryer. <laughs> and literally, I folded like probably 15 items of clothing, and every single one of them was black. <laughs> It's like, oh, I might need to diversify my portfolio a little bit. And add a little <laughs> splash of color in here every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Those are like my most frequently worn items also. So classic. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to ask the listeners need to know, what are you drinking tonight? Mm, well, I decided that I was just going to have some caffeine to kind of power through because hmm. I am feeling a little droopy tonight. Are you? So I grabbed uh, Mountain Dew. <laughs> nice. In my Starbucks cup again. Very good. <laughs> I probably won't drink any of it and then it'll get all watery from the ice. But yeah, here we are. Here we are. And then you are drinking. Tonight I am drinking a Malibu Coke because mm. I was uh, feeling like not as creative if I were AK to go mode. for another, another uh, whiskey and Dr. Pepper or whiskey and Coke. So I just changed the alcohol mm-hmm. <laughs> creativity. Yay. Gotta love it. So, but I will say uh, a good Malibu Cola never hurt nobody. Mm. It probably has hurt someone. You're right. It's probably hurt a lot of people, but it, uh, one small one has not hurt me before, which there is we good. Go. That's a better, that's a, <laughs> probably a safer statement. There's a much safer statement. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, my love Do you have a feel-good fact for us? I do. It's kind of a long one. Okay. It's like a little slow burn, but it's worth it. Take us there. So the blood of one man has saved the lives of more than 2 million children. Hmm. An 81-year-old Australian man has a super rare type of blood plasma that can be used to treat, I'm going to shoot for the moon, uh, Reese's disease, Hmm. which is a disease that can occur in a pregnancy. Through his 1,000... 137 blood donations that he's made, his blood has been used to treat over 2 million babies, effectively saving their lives. Oh my gosh. He donated every three weeks from 1954 until he reached the age limit for blood donation in 2018. His name is James Harrison or the man with the golden arm. Oh my gosh. That guy is a true hero. and Like an actual hero. So... Maybe I missed it. Did he did he know that he was donating blood? I believe that so. That was like I think they like blood typed him and were yeah. like uh, we we don't see this very often. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. So yeah. he just he made a point to go and take care of business. He donated every 3 weeks that's from a, 1954 until 2018. Man. I have literally donated blood maybe 10 times. He donated th- every three weeks for more than 60 years. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that is, that's how, how, many, how many times is that? How many times would that be? Well, 1,137 blood donations. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's a real feel good fact. He that literally is, saved 2 million babies. Yeah. That is a very feel good fact. Yes. And that guy, is he still alive? I didn't see anything if he was deceased or not, okay. but I had this one kind of in my bank of mm-hmm. feel good facts mm-hmm. for a while. So I don't know. So I hope so. I hope so too. He and deserves, that guy deserves a medal if he doesn't have one already. He probably does. I hope, I hope he has a lot of medals. Amazing. James Harrison. He deserves to be in the history books mm-hmm. and immortalized forever as a hero. Well, he's immortalized here on this one's yeah, a doozy for everyone we've done to hear. <laughs> we appreciate you, James. Great job, James. All right. Well, with that, my love, why don't you go ahead and uh, take us into what you have for us today? Yeah. So this story was sent by email 
uh, by Shelby. And she actually has a personal connection to this story that I'll talk a little bit more about at the end. Hmm. So content warning before we begin. Anyone familiar with today's story knows that it's absolutely brutal and heart-wrenching. This story involves a truly heinous crime spree. And I will be mentioning things from violent sexual assault to... I mean, just brutal, brutal murder. So mm. uh, today I'm going to tell you about the Wichita Massacre. Mm, okay. This one's going to be a tough one to get through. Yeah. So without further ado, buckle up, Kev, because this one is a doozy. Okay. In the city of Wichita, Kansas, in December of 2000, a series of brutal murders committed over the span of a week would be perpetrated at the hands of two brothers bent on inflicting terror and wreaking havoc. The murders were random and senseless, but the events that would lead to their capture truly are shocking. Hmm. It feels like a plot twist that's really only possible in a movie. So before we start talking about the murders, we're going to talk about the brothers. 22-year-old Reginald Carr and 20-year-old Jonathan Carr. Hmm. Unfortunately, the childhoods of Reginald and Jonathan were pretty rough. Another content warning here. There are allegations of child abuse and neglect, childhood sexual assault, discussions of risky behavior, domestic violence, mention of suicide, and also the mention of the death of a small child. So if you don't want to hear any of those awful things, skip forward a few minutes. How do I do that? How do I skip forward a few minutes right now? (laughs) You can't. Okay. The Carr brothers were born and raised in Dodge City, Kansas, and from even their days as babies and toddlers, their parents would get into regular fights, including screaming matches and even physical altercations. The traumas of their childhood would result in the two forming a very tight bond. Like, out of anyone else in the whole world, my brother understands me, and he knows how I feel, Mm. and he's got my back. Mm Mm-hmm. The strain in the family would amp up when their two-year-old little sister passed away and when their parents got divorced. It's been alleged that both of the boys were subjected to physical and sexual violence at the hands of their mother and her many unstable boyfriends over the years. I also read that their mother would punish them with electrical cords. There were no specifications on what that means, but that's what I read. Oh my God. Which is just puzzling on top of disturbing. Yes. The boys began engaging in risky behavior ranging from drug use and experimenting with sex from as young of an age as six years old. What? Yes. I'm not even sure how you would do such a thing, but that's incredibly sad. Just deeply sad. Yeah. You, you, You don't learn that stuff just... You don't learn it by happenstance. That's yes. a that's a thing that you observe. Yeah. And then you, try yourself. Yeah. So their mother, Janice Harding, got remarried, and it was an equally toxic marriage as her first one was. It's alleged that the fights were just as violent and explosive, mm. and at one point it's also alleged that Janice's husband held a gun to her head during a fight. I believe at least one of the boys, if not both of them, saw that. Oh, jeez. Throughout their early childhood and into their teen years, Reginald and Jonathan would sometimes go live with their maternal grandmother. It's alleged that she was also abusive and would sort of explode with anger at the boys. Through high school, these behaviors would continue and expand into even more dangerous behavior. Reginald would get into many physical fights at school and engage in various crimes. And Jonathan would attempt suicide by drinking antifreeze at the age of 16. By the time both boys reached early adulthood, they had each acquired a rap sheet and were no strangers to local police. Reginald would also have a string of failed relationships and marriages in his younger adult years. What ended up happening here between the brothers is that their whole lives as individuals and as a pair were kind of like defined solely by the trauma that they endured in their youth. Mm -hmm. From what I could find, there wasn't much, if anything, in the way of resources for them to receive mental health care or for them to be put in a loving, safe home that would help them out even a little bit. Mm -hmm. So as we've discussed on this show a few times by this point, whenever I talk about the childhoods of murderers and we discover loads of awful trauma, what we're not doing is empathizing with them as adults or with their actions against other people as adults. What we're doing is laying down some like need to know facts that are relevant to the story. And in this case, their childhoods are pretty relevant. Hmm. These guys were very messed up from years of abuse. They didn't have access to get help out of the situations that they were in. And then from there, they chose to continue the dark cycle of inflicting harm. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they took it to the nth degree Mm. because they wanted to. 
At the end of the day, they chose to do the things that they did and they should be absolutely fully accountable to those things because they're disgusting and unfair. Yeah. And straight up what they decided to do next was something that they were excited about. Oh no. Which makes all of this all the more terrible. So our hearts will always stand first with the victims and we'll talk about all of them as we go. So let's keep going. Okay. On December 8th, for some unknown reason, Reginald and Jonathan decided to make the two and a half hour drive to Wichita, Kansas in order to go on a crime spree. Their motivations for driving there were explicitly for that reason. They wanted to go on a crime spree. So December 8th, 2000, 23 year old Andrew Schreiber had everything going for him. The six foot tall, blonde haired blue eyed man had just landed his dream job as an assistant baseball coach at Newman University in Wichita. He said that from the time that he could walk, that baseball was like his whole world. Mm. So he was quite literally living his dream. Yeah. On that night, Andrew had stopped at a come and go gas station when he was approached by the car brothers, one of them wielding a gun, ordering him into his car. Oof. Andrew was obviously terrified, but he thought that if he just complied with what they were telling him to do, that maybe he'd be okay and like make it out. Mm-hmm. Once Andrew was forced into the driver's seat, the car brothers also hopped into the car and made him drive around and withdraw money from various ATMs in the area. Mm. After withdrawing and handing over $800, Andrew was then made to drive to a field where they let him go. Then they mm. shot out his tires and stole someone else's vehicle before driving off into the night. Thankfully, Andrew was physically unharmed, but this was a terrifying and traumatizing ordeal, and he was badly shaken up by it. Yeah. The spree would amp up in just a few short days. On December 11th, 2000, at around 9.30 p.m., 55-year-old Ann Walenta was returning home from a rehearsal with the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. Ann was an incredibly accomplished cellist Hmm. and was also an orchestra librarian. So she was in charge of ordering and managing music Mm -hmm. for the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Classical music was one of Anne's true loves. She had earned her bachelor's degree in instrumental music education and also her master's in music theory and composition from Wichita State University. She spent many years teaching in various states before she returned home to Wichita, offering private instrumental lessons and working for a university before landing her job that she was working at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. The only things that she loved more than music were her husband, Don, and her two children. So on December 11th, she was returning home when she noticed a sedan that appeared to have been following her around for quite some time. So when she reached her street, she drove past her home. She wanted to get rid of this person following her so they like didn't know where she lived in case they had bad intentions. Right. So she drove around her neighborhood for a few minutes and parked on a street until the vehicle passed her. At that time, which was right around 9.30 p.m., she pulled back onto her street. She parked her Yukon, which is a big SUV, Mm -hmm. in front of her home. And just as she was preparing to exit her vehicle, she was approached by an unknown man, one of the car brothers, who told her that they needed help. She thought about what to do for a minute because this was not an everyday occurrence in her neighborhood. But before she could respond, the young man pulled out a gun and ordered her to not move the car. Oh, no. In a panic at seeing a stranger wielding a gun at her, Anne attempted to drive away, but the man began firing shots at her vehicle, breaking out her vehicle's windows and striking her body in her lung, arm, and spinal cord. No. Thinking on her feet and knowing she needed help right away, Anne began blasting the horn of her vehicle. Anne's neighbor, Anna Kelly, heard the horn, but initially thought nothing of it because it wasn't uncommon for teenagers in the neighborhood to honk their horns to, like, alert a friend that they were picking up that they'd arrived. Yeah. Because it couldn't just, like, shoot a text. It's 2000. (laughs) Beep. You know, so that was pretty normal. But when the honking continued, Anna stepped out onto her porch to see what was going on. And that's when she noticed Anne's vehicle with lights flashing and horn blaring outside. So she also heard Anne yelling from her car, Anna, help me. Oh my gosh. She yelled in the door to her husband, telling him to call the police and ran over to try and help Anne. Anne did her best to give a description of the man who shot her and did her best to explain the events that had unfolded. She also told Anna that she couldn't feel her legs and that she didn't think she was going to make it. Anna reassured her friend and comforted her as they waited for help to arrive. Anne was taken to the emergency room at Wesley Medical Center, where a trauma surgeon by the name of Scott Porter assisted in treating Anne's wounds. One of the bullets that had hit her had severed her spinal cord, rendering her paralyzed from the waist down. Oh, my gosh. 
Over the course of the next month, Anne would be in and out of consciousness, and whenever she was awake, she'd give detectives and visitors her best recollections of the incident, Mm -hmm. as well as descriptions of the assailant. Hmm. All of her efforts would later prove instrumental in the case. On January 2nd, 2001, at 10 a.m., Anne was in a fantastic mood and was making great strides in recovery. Anna Kelly had actually visited her that morning and said that Anne was really upbeat because she'd been told that she would likely be able to play the cello again at some point despite oh, her injuries. Wow. Dr. Porter also checked on her around that time and found her in a good spot. But unfortunately, a little over an hour later, Dr. Porter would receive an alert that Anne was having trouble breathing. It was quickly learned that a blood clot had traveled into her lungs. Oh, no. Heartbreakingly, Anne Walenta would pass away around 11.50 a.m. from the complication. That's awful. I know. She sounded like such a cool lady. Yeah. And just like so sweet. So we're going to skip back a few weeks from the time of Anne Walenta's passing back to the time of the crime spree. Mm -hmm. So... On December 14th, 2000, the crime spree would hit a terrible, violent crescendo. On that evening, five friends were hanging out together, just like they did often. One woman, who was 25 at the time of the attack, and for the like majority of the time that this case was being reported on, she was only referred to as Holly G mm-hmm. to protect her privacy. Oh, okay. So Holly G headed over to her boyfriend's house, where he lived with his roommates. Okay. Holly's boyfriend, 26-year-old Jason Beffert, was an accomplished athlete, member of a fraternity on campus, and had graduated from Kansas State University with a degree in secondary education. Hmm. After graduation, he went on to become a science teacher and a coach, coaching football, girls basketball, and track. Hmm. One of his roommates, 27-year-old Bradley Haka, was known for his ability to walk into a room and brighten it up. He was also a member of a fraternity at Kansas State University and was such a good student that he could maintain solid grades without even trying. Oh, wow. Everybody would get like annoyed with him because he was so smart. (laughs) Like it was like too easy almost. Yeah. (laughs) He also had a passion for golf. (laughs) He graduated with a degree in finance and landed a job at Cook Industries, where he quickly made his way up the ladder in the finance department. The other roommate was 29 year old Aaron Sander. He'd gained his degree in finance and had actually been in the process of pursuing becoming a priest at the time of this story. Hmm. Yeah. And finally, Aaron's former girlfriend, 25-year-old Heather Muller, was also at the home. Heather was a preschool teacher at a local church and had goals of pursuing life as a nun at this time. Wow. So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So on this particular night, Holly arrived Jason's home around 8.30 p.m. with her little dog, Nikki. When she arrived, Jason wasn't home yet, so his roommates let her in. She made her way to Jason's room where she sat down and began grading papers since she was also a teacher. Hmm. She also turned on the TV and the show ER was playing in the background while she worked. Hmm. She got up and made a sandwich for Jason so that he could grab something quick to eat after coaching. And then afterwards, the two went to bed around 1045 p.m. Okay. Around 11 p.m., they heard someone knock on the door and they heard Aaron talking to someone. Seconds later, the man bursted into the home and into the bedroom, a second man following behind him and both of them with semi-automatic handguns. Oh gosh, that's horrifying. So scary. So content warning. The events that would take place in this home are incredibly upsetting. We will be once again mentioning sexual violence as well as graphic depictions of assault and murder. Once both men were in the home, they forced Aaron, Jason, and Holly into a room at gunpoint, demanding them to tell them who else was in the home. None of them wanted to do so, but since they were all terrified for their lives, they informed the men that Bradley was sleeping downstairs and Heather was sleeping in another room. One of the men went and grabbed Heather and Bradley, forcing everyone into Jason's bedroom. They were then ordered to strip naked and hand over all of their money. They were also demanding that somebody needed to shut up the little dog because little Nikki was barking. Sure. So the group was pulled out of Jason's room in pairs. They were forced to perform non-consensual sexual acts on each other uh, while the assailants watched. Oh my gosh. Just like so dehumanizing. I can't even believe it. It was later discovered that someone had urinated on the floor in Jason's room out of fear, which really broke my heart to read. When Aaron hesitated to engage in non-consensual sex, he was struck hard in the head, eventually complying as well. Both of the women were repeatedly raped and sodomized during this time by both men. Oh. 
Each person was then individually forced into a vehicle and then ordered to withdraw money from an ATM. In total, the Carr brothers had stolen $2,000 from the group. Oh my gosh. Holly was the last one taken to the ATM. During her time with one of the men, he asked her if she had liked the horrifying sexual assault that she just endured. Goodness. Did you like it? So she told him yes, thinking that maybe if she told him what he wanted to hear, then maybe he wouldn't hurt her anymore. Right. He also told her that it's a shame that things went down this way because she's cute and they probably would have dated under different circumstances. Oh my gosh. Freaking. The nerve. Monstrous. The nerve. So she asked him if he was going to shoot her. He told her, no, we're not going to shoot you. When they returned to the home, the Carr brothers forced everyone into a closet and then proceeded to flip the house upside down, searching high and low for all of the valuables inside of the home. At this time, one of the brothers found an empty popcorn box under Jason's bed. In the box was a smaller box holding an engagement ring. Oh, no. The brothers demanded to know whose it was. A terrified Jason raised his hand and looked over at Holly and said, quote, that's for you. I was going to ask you to marry me, end quote. Oh, my gosh. Jason was planning on proposing to Holly on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. The brothers asked to know if it was the only one like it in the home, to which Jason slowly and sadly nodded his head yes. Once the Carr brothers had finished their rampage through the house, they forced each victim, naked and afraid, into the cold night and out into one of the two vehicles that the men had driven there. At this point, the group had endured a solid three hours of torture at the hands of total strangers in the one place that they should feel is the safest. Right. So they drove for a short minute before arriving to an empty soccer field, and then they led the people out. Once they were all out on the field, they were forced to kneel down. At that moment, Holly cried out, oh my God, they're going to shoot us. One by one, the Carr brothers shot each person in the head, execution style. The only sound between gunshots being the sounds of each victim crying and pleading for their lives. It was recalled that Aaron had used the words, please, sir. Good. The final person to be shot was Holly. After she was shot, one of the brothers kicked Holly in the back, causing her to slump onto the cold, snowy ground before turning around and climbing into a truck. They then proceeded to run over each of the victims that they just ruthlessly shot before driving off into the night. They ran them over with the truck. Oh, but so much in the last five minutes that you said that just like. I can't imagine enduring all of that. It's so unthinkably awful. I can't imagine enduring any of that. I know. I know all of it. This is an awful story. So here's where things do become incredibly just mind blowingly unreal. Despite being tortured, raped, terrorized, shot in the head, run over and left to bleed out naked in the snow. Holly was not dead. Oh my gosh. After the car brothers had driven away, Holly woke up though. She'd been shot in the back of the head and the bullet had pierced her skull. It didn't hit her brain. Wow. How is that possible? You may be wondering. Yes. Because of the plastic barrette that she had clipped into her hair in the morning before the incident. Wow. A tiny 25 cent piece of plastic had saved her life when the bullet bounced off of it. Wow. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. Even though she was not out of the woods yet, she was alive and she was determined to keep fighting for her life. Mm Mm-hmm. Holly flipped over each of her friends to see if any of them had survived, but much to her horror, she was the only one who had appeared Mm, to have made it. While none of them were fully clothed, one of them did have a sweater. Mm. She took the sweater and wrapped it around Jason's head, thinking that maybe there was a chance he was still alive and she could help stop the bleeding. Yeah. So barefoot, naked, and bleeding from the wound on her head, and absolutely drained from the horror that had been inflicted upon her that night, Holly set off into the 17-degree night, which is uh, in Celsius, negative 8 degrees Celsius. She walked a mile through the soccer field, and then further through a construction site, around the perimeter of a pond, across mounds of snow and brush. She crossed two fence lines and climbed two barbed wire fences in the direction of a light that she believed was either an airport or a residence. Every time she saw lights from a vehicle, she would press herself down hard into the snow, fearing that every car that passed would be driven by her attackers who would not hesitate to kill her had they discovered that she was still alive. Right. 
Every time she felt like giving up, she'd give herself a little pep talk to bolster her spirits, and then she'd keep pushing forward. Oh my gosh. I know, sweet Holly. Finally, around 2 a.m., she reached a home. She approached the house and began pounding on the door, begging the residents sleeping inside to help her. An older couple, Steve and Kim Johnson, came to the door and were absolutely shocked at the sight of a naked and bloody woman on their porch, Mm -hmm. but they kindly helped her. Wow. They brought Holly inside and wrapped her in blankets and then called 911. While they waited for police to arrive, Holly, dazed and disoriented and worried that she still might not survive, Mm -hmm. explained what had happened to her and her friends, recounting every painful detail as quickly as she could in an attempt to get the truth out in case Mm -hmm. she wouldn't end up making it. Right, right. She also recalled the events to a first responder. Hmm. Holly was taken to the hospital to be treated for her injuries, which included a skull fracture, frostbite on her feet, as well as bruises and abrasions across her entire body. So small content warning again, I'm going to briefly mention a screening that attempts to collect evidence of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And I know that even that part of sexual assault can be traumatizing. So I wanted to offer that warning just Mm -hmm. in case. Mm -hmm. So shortly after that, I'm also going to be mentioning violence against an animal. So Mm -hmm. there's the the little heads up. The woman who conducted Holly's rape kit, a nurse practitioner named Debbie Went, would later testify that Holly was absolutely set on giving her as much information as humanly possible in an attempt to get justice for herself and her friends. Debbie said that Holly would say things like, I don't want to forget about this. Please write this down. Mm. She also did her best to give detailed physical descriptions of her attackers and gave descriptions of the vehicles that they'd last been seen in. Mm. A silver Dodge Dakota pickup truck and a beige Honda Civic, which were vehicles belonging to two of the victims. So they'd stolen their cars on top of everything else. Yeah. Oh, where, so this, this whole thing takes place. I'm, I'm curious to know where these people got semi-automatic weapons. Like that seems to be something important to know. Cause I know I, I like couldn't n- find it anywhere. N- okay. Okay. I'm, yeah. I feel like none of this would have happened or at least, you know, would have been severely limited if they didn't have something absolutely horrifying to be pointed at you, you know? Right. Not that, you know, there's plenty of weapons that a would gun be changes the game. Yeah. Though. But a, a semi-automatic gun feels even more threatening. I feel yeah. Like. I never saw anything about where they, where they had gotten the guns from. Mm. And I'd also just seen like vaguely they had handguns, but I saw it reported enough that they were semi-automatic handguns. Hmm. I actually don't know what that is. Like if I'm being honest, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I understand what the like, technical differences are, but I wouldn't be able to point out Yeah, if I looked at one, you know, what, mm. what the difference is. No clue where they got it. I'm going to guess, given their rap sheets, that they were not acquired legally. I'm not sure, though. Sure. Yeah. You okay. never know. Yeah, that's fair. So, meanwhile, the brothers drove back to the home that they just destroyed, and they took a golf club and killed Holly's dog with it. Oh, my gosh. Nobody knows. Nobody knows why they did this because it was like so pointless. And they struck the dog so hard that it was internally decapitated, which is just so gruesome. They drove back. Yeah. Some people, some of the sources say that they stole more things. But like, I, what else was there to steal? They took all of the money. Right. So we will talk, I suppose, a little bit more about that. But like, why kill the dog? It just seems heartless is really what it comes down to. Very heartless. That's not going to help you at all. Mm -hmm. So members of the Wichita police department quickly began looking into the crime. First at the soccer field scene was sheriff's deputy, Matthew Lynch. He discovered that Heather and Jason did not have a pulse, but Mm. it appeared as though Aaron and Bradley were both attempting to breathe. So EMS were quickly on the scene. Wow. Unfortunately, Aaron and Bradley would both pass away from their injuries as well. In all, all four of the friends found on the soccer field would pass away. All of this was happening within less than an hour after the 911 call was made from the Johnson home, just as a side note. It's like they were on it. Yeah. The bodies were removed from the scene and other bits of evidence from the soccer field were collected. They found spent bullet casings, a bullet fragment, an ATM receipt, and pieces of Holly's plastic hair bread. Officers were also dispatched to the home and were quickly set on getting to the bottom of this crime. At the home, Officer Michael Dean arrived around 3 a.m. and Sergeant John Hoofer arrived around the same time. 
On his way there, he saw a truck matching the description that Holly had given. He turned around to try and pursue it, but lost track of it. So he Mm. headed over to the home. Okay. The scene at the house was an absolute disaster, obviously. In the bedrooms, they found that the dressers all had drawers pulled out of them. There were clothes everywhere on the floor. The beds had been stripped and there was a blood stain on the, either on or near the bed. Hmm. And the blood stain belonged to the little dog. And they also, that's when they found the body of the dog. The living room and downstairs living area were absolutely ransacked. The TV was missing from the entertainment center upstairs. And in the basement, the computer had been stolen from the desk. The home was quickly secured as a crime scene. During this process, Officer Dean noticed a vehicle pulling up near the residence. This struck him as odd because this was not a highly trafficked street. Mm -hmm. The ground was also packed with like fresh snow, Mm -hmm. which makes driving conditions pretty dangerous at best. And it was four in the morning. So he watched as the driver slowly pulled up to the house and noticed that the driver was making an obvious effort to not look at the officer or the crime scene which struck Officer Dean as doubly strange, considering that any normal person not guilty of a crime right. would see a crime scene being secured and be like, what's going on here? Right. Like, yeah. I would be putting my car in park and sticking my head out the window because I'm nosy like that, and I would want to know. Right, right. But he was like, the driver was staring straight forward, purposely not looking, That's, which felt weird. Uh, yeah. So the officer took down the license plate and notified Hoofer of what he'd seen. And then they sent that information out so they could find the car and question the driver. Mm-hmm. Hoofer was quickly on it. And at 4.13 a.m., the car was pulled over. The officer wow. saw the, yeah, I know, fast. Really fast. The officer saw the ID of the driver and saw that the name of the driver was none other than Reginald Carr. Oh, yes. Unfortunately, though, at this time, they didn't have any way of knowing that this was one of the murderers that they were looking for. Dang it. So after, yeah, yeah. So Reginald explained to Sergeant Hoofer that he was driving to his girlfriend's apartment. He gave Hoofer the name, Stephanie Donnelly, and the location of the apartment, and then he was sent on his way. I believe that Reginald and Jonathan were staying with Stephanie while they were in Wichita carrying out the crime spree. Wow. I'm pretty positive that's like where their home base was. Or they were like hopping around different friends' houses in the area. So Reginald would drive to the apartments called the Windsor at Woodgate around 4.30 a.m. And he would go into the apartment belonging to Stephanie Donnelly. Hmm. He left for a short minute for some reason. And then he came back. Sure. While he was doing this, another resident at Windsor at Woodgate, Christian Taylor, was in his apartment watching the news as he got ready for work. The story of Mm -hmm. what had happened to Holly and her friends was already being reported on. Wow. In the broadcast, descriptions of the crimes, as well as descriptions of the vehicles that had been stolen, were being reported on. Mm -hmm. When he went outside and walked to his car around 6.25 a.m., Christian noticed that a truck that he didn't recognize was parked next to his car. And it matched the description of the truck on the news. Yeah. And it had a large TV in the bed of it. He also noticed a man, who we later find out was Reginald, walking out from behind the truck. This sent alarm bells ringing through Christian's head. He wondered if this was the stolen truck and if the man he saw had anything to do with the murders that he'd just seen on the news. Uh He tried to appear like casual, nonchalant, you know, to avoid alerting the man. He got into his car and then sped off to the police department and reported what he saw. Hmm. So he did the right thing. He saw something weird and he reported it. So I'm really thankful for that. So at the same time, another resident at Windsor at Woodgate I'm going to try my best. Rewa Obel Naskalanathu. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <sighs> so we're just going to say Obel. Obel okay. had exited his apartment shortly after 6 a.m. to warm up his vehicle before he headed out for the day. He saw a man carrying a large TV heading in the direction of one of the apartment buildings in the complex. Mm-hmm. And he also noticed the same silver truck. Yeah. The man carrying the TV was struggling with the large TV. And so Obel decided to help him. So as he's like, I know. So he's chatting with this guy struggling with a giant TV in the snow. And Mm -hmm. the guy said that, you know, I'm just moving in. You know, this is my new apartment. That's probably why you've never seen my truck before. You know, he's he's playing it cool. And Obel has no reason not to believe him. He's just trying to be a nice neighbor. Yeah. So as soon as they made it to apartment 819, Reginald offered Obel a tip, which he refused. But he did notice a fat wad of cash that the man who was Reginald had taken Mm -hmm. out of his pocket. Mm -hmm. He then sent Obel on his way, thanking him for his help. 
When he got inside with a giant TV and a bunch of cash, Stephanie was like a little bit confused. Sure. Reginald had told her that his sister had asked him and Jonathan to come and take a bunch of stuff out of her garage. Hmm. That was his cover up. Wow. He also said that in the middle of the night, there was a married woman that Jonathan had been having an affair with and that her husband had caught them. He said there was like a shootout and that Jonathan had run off and that he's been trying to find him. So he's got like an elaborate cover story. Stephanie was still like, okay, this is weird. And like, none of this actually makes sense, but like, okay, I guess, you know? Yeah. But she took him at his word. Right. Which, I mean, if you've got friends, like that's the friend thing to do is to believe your friends. But Mm -hmm. when your friends are absolute monsters, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Uh. So, I mean- she didn't know what he'd been up to over right, the last right. week. So she went and did her thing while Reginald hopped into the shower. So during this time, which is still before 7 a.m., police had arrived at Windsor at Woodgate to follow up on the tip that Christian gave them. Mm-hmm. They very quickly found the truck with its tailgate still opened and determined that it was the truck the men had stolen. It belonged to Jason Beffert. Mm. They also quickly found several items belonging to the victims. They found comforters that had been thrown in the dumpster. Mm. as well as checkbooks with the victim's mm-hmm. names on them, clothing and other items kind of like strewn about in the immediate area surrounding the truck. Yeah. Also near the truck were drag marks and footprints that led to another discarded comforter. It was at this time that Obel was stopped by police and was asked if he'd seen anything out of the ordinary. He told them that he just helped an unknown man claiming to be a new resident move a large TV into apartment 819. Hmm. So more officers quickly showed up, realizing that this is obviously connected to the case. So they quickly surrounded apartment 819, including stationing an officer on the balcony of the apartment, Hmm. which would turn out to be a really good move. Yeah. So when police knocked on the door and announced themselves, Reginald actually did try to run and jump off the balcony. (laughs) Wow. So when he saw the officer there, he just kind of like froze. Right, right. And then he walked back into the apartment. So on him was a gas card belonging to Jason, a watch that belonged to Heather, ATM receipts with the victim's names on them, and Mm -hmm. a bunch of cash. More items belonging to the victims were found in the apartment as well. So Reginald was very promptly arrested. Yes. But during all of this, where's Jonathan? Right. So Jonathan had called a friend by the name of Tronda Adams a few hours before Reginald appeared at the Windsor at Woodgate Apartments. Mm Mm-hmm. He told Tronda that he'd missed a train that he was planning on taking to Ohio. And he asked if he could spend the night in the home that Tronda shared with her mother while he kind of like regrouped and Mm -hmm. replanned his trip. Hmm. So she quickly said, yes. She's like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, it's the middle of the night. Like, come on in. Sorry, Hmm. your plans got ruined. Being a good friend. So when he arrived, he was acting suspicious. And Tronda noticed that right away he had at least $500 in cash on him which Uh was very strange. Yeah. Later that morning, Jonathan would attempt to make several calls to his sister. And then Tronda turned on the morning news. Oh, when she saw the news of the quadruple homicide, she sort of casually told Jonathan about it, giving him specific details and asked him if he'd heard about it yet. He told her, no, I haven't heard about that. And then he asked her if the news broadcast had told her how police had the information they had about the crimes. She told him Mm. that one of the victims was still alive and cooperating with the investigation. Now I'm stressed out. Yeah, very stressful. Later that day, a jewelry box was found by Tronda's mother with an engagement ring in it. It's a ring that Jason had gotten for Holly. Yeah. Assuming it was Jonathan, she put it back in the box. But then a follow-up newscast was made. It was a video of Reginald's arrest. Tronda Mm. pulled Jonathan aside and asked him if he knew about the arrest and if he knew what had happened. He pulled some baloney story out of a hat and mm-hmm. Tronda wasn't having it. Right. Meanwhile, Tronda's mother continued watching the broadcast that stated one of the items stolen from the home of the victims mm-hmm. was a diamond engagement ring. Oh my God. So immediately like red flag. Right. And they also described a vehicle matching the one Jonathan had showed up to their house driving in. Yeah. She also noticed that Jonathan was wearing the same clothes that Holly described when she gave her statement to police. Mm-hmm. So these are some smart ladies. They yes. realized what was going on. Tronda's mother called her and said, the police are looking for Jonathan. He's one of the suspects wanted in this awful quadruple homicide on the news. Yeah. And so they like planned this whole escape to get out of their house because they're like feeling unsafe. For sure. So they ran over to their neighbor's home while Jonathan was like 
busy doing whatever he was doing inside of their house. Yeah. Yeah. So also in the newscast, as a side note, they did say that they believe that the suspect that's still at large is armed. Mm, Yeah. So So. they, they were very aware that this is a dangerous person. Mm -hmm. This is not a great situation. So Tronda, her mother and their neighbor called the police from the neighbor's home. And when they looked outside, they saw Jonathan running down the alley. After a short chase on foot, Jonathan was also arrested. Thank Mm. goodness. Wow. They found a few of the victim's belongings inside of the home, inside of the car, as well as on Jonathan at the time of his arrest. Mm -hmm. Also, this part is really unsettling to me. But while he was in the police car, Jonathan started asking the officer questions like, what's capital murder? And what's, you know, what's the deal with the death penalty? Like if someone gets you know, sentenced oh with the death gosh. penalty. What does that mean? Um, when he was informed that the death penalty was conducted via lethal injection in Kansas, he asked if a person being put to death by lethal injection felt pain. Uh, I don't know why, but those questions left like a not. Yeah. Honestly, in my gut. Like, I, I, I rolled pretty hard because it literally just sounds like somebody who knows that they're caught should keep their mouth shut. And instead is just going to like play this like a curious little boy. Well, I think that's why it is is unsettling to me because it does feel very like immature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it feel that those feel like very childlike questions to me. Right. But this is a grown adult man who's made some terrible decisions that. Yeah. It feels so like contradictory to what he just did. Those questions, sure. Those yeah. questions seem very, yeah. They they feel so childlike, and then what he did, and was part of doing the mm-hmm. night before was so inhumane mm-hmm. and so monstrous and so out of the realm of, of what any human should be able to do to another human, that something about that really feels twisted to me. Yeah. Hmm. So, that's just a side thought. That's that's fair. That's fair. It 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 makes me. It just gives me some <laughs> angry emotion mm-hmm. that I'm just kind of like, at best, you're actually that uh, unaware. And yeah, good grief, does that make me frustrated for everybody around you that you would make this decision to do something so awful mm-hmm. without actually knowing even how terrible it is, obviously. And at worst, uh, you're just trying to like play coy Mm -hmm. and that just, that makes me just want to (laughs) reach, reach into the story story and and, yeah, just beat somebody up. Like (laughs) what is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah, I do agree. I feel like it also does highlight like the major lack of foresight. Sure. Sure. Also like how how odd it is to be excited to go commit a crime, like a violent crime spree. Right. Like, yay, we're going to go do this. And yeah, it just, and assume that you won't get caught and assume that it'll all turn out and you'll be basically a, a cowboy. Right. <laughs> robbing a train. Like, right. Yeah. I don't know. That whole thing made me feel some feelings and I'm yeah. very confused by them. Yeah. Okay. So in an attempt to identify the suspects, all living victims were shown a series of photos. Initially, Andrew Schreiber, Holly and Anne Walenta were all questioned. Mm-hmm. I know it's a little confusing since Anne passed away, but the arrests were made on the 15th of December. Right. So right. that was a couple of weeks before she died. Yeah. So Walenta was able to identify one person in the photo lineup and that was Reginald. Andrew wasn't initially able to identify his attackers, but when news broke about Reginald's arrest, he called the police and informed them that he was 90% sure that the man he saw on the newscast was, in fact, one of the men who'd attacked him. Mm. Holly was also able to identify Reginald in the photo lineup, but was a little bit more uncertain about identifying Jonathan until the trial in 2002, Mm. which was two years after the incident. Wow, that's a long time to go. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. The trial began on September 9th, 2002 at Sedgwick County Courthouse. The trial was just as awful as you would imagine it would be. Mm -hmm. Holly was quickly able to identify both men and was able to recount specific moments of the night of the attack conducted by each of the individual men. 
I'm not going to get into the details on yeah. that this time. Yeah. You, you know the details now. So the cars were brought in on a total of 113 charges between the two of them. Wow. At the top of the list of charges were four capital murder charges each, mm-hmm. which put the death penalty on the table for both men should they be convicted. Mm-hmm. So during the trial, the prosecution laid down plenty of compelling evidence against the brothers. First being the autopsies of the four friends. Content warning, the autopsies will reflect the method of murder as well as the various assaults that took place, Mm -hmm. both physical and sexual assault. So if you don't want to hear about that, you'll probably want to skip ahead maybe five or so minutes. So we're going to start with Jason Beffert. Jason's cause of death was listed as an intermediate range gunshot wound to the head. His body had various blunt force injuries as well as a mark across his backside that was consistent with being hit with a golf club or similar instrument. Mm. (sighs) Yeah. Awful. So Bradley's cause of death was also intermediate range gunshot wound to the head. He also sustained several blunt force injuries to his face. Aaron's cause of death was listed as a contact gunshot wound to the head, meaning the gun was placed against the back of his head when he was shot. He had blunt force injuries on his head, neck, and legs. These wounds specifically a large one across his forehead was consistent with being struck with a golf club or similar instrument. Heather also had died from a contact gunshot wound to the head. She had injuries across her body, knees and genital area that were consistent with sexual assault. Uh All victims wounds were consistent with being in a kneeling position while someone shot them from behind. Frustratingly, when Holly underwent physical exams after the incident, it would later be determined that she'd contracted HPV. When Reginald was arrested and underwent physical exams, it was determined that he had genital warts that were consistent with HPV as well. Oh, my gosh. So he brutally, physically, and sexually assaulted these women and passed on an STD in the process. Wow. Which is champion right there. Just so frustrating. It's like a whole new level. Yeah. Other important notes about evidence from the prosecution include semen that was found both in the room and on Holly's body that belonged to one or both of the men, Mm -hmm. as well as hairs and other trace DNA found at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. Holly also came in and testified in the trial, which like blows my mind. Yeah. She gave her best recollection of events, reopening the wounds of the most traumatizing night of her life. The jury was so moved by her story and by her courage that many of them cried the whole time she spoke. Mm -hmm. Evidence was also presented in the crimes against Andrew Schreiber and Ann Walenta. The defense came in and did their job defending their clients. The defense really hung their hats on the troubled childhoods of both of the defendants and the psychological effects of enduring such trauma and abuse from a young age. They argue that Reginald had made strides in his attempts to be a good father to his three children and that they have both demonstrated seasons of progress. Also, they had a doctor come in and say that the PET scans that each man underwent showed abnormal brains, but then they brought in a different neurologist and that guy argued against the claim. He's Hmm. like there, I don't see anything abnormal here. Yeah. And so there was a little back and forth about that. Sure. Sure. So at no point during the trial did either brother turn on the other one in exchange for a lighter sentence, which you will see that in a lot of cases where there's more than one defendant. Where they'll say, oh, sure. I mean, I'm going to get the death penalty off the table. I yeah, might just get yeah. a life sentence. Okay, sick. He did it. Yeah. You know? And then that usually causes the other one to turn. Right, you know, right. it can get pretty messy. Right. But neither of them did that. Interesting. Neither of the men attempted to shift blame for the crimes onto the other. But they did present those childhood and potential psychological factors as a sort of explanation mm-hmm. for their actions. In the end, the jury deliberated and came back in agreement that Jonathan and Reginald Carr were each guilty and sentenced each to a life sentence for the murder of Ann Walenta and then four counts of capital murder each and a whole mess of other terms of imprisonment for their various charges. Yeah. So they got the death penalty on all four counts of that is, capital. Yeah. That is the right thing, honestly. So they've got, Man. I mean, a mess of prison time. <laughs> yeah. Just a mess. Since the trial, there have been appeals, and in 2014, the charges were upheld, but the death penalty was actually overturned. Hmm. There has been quite a bit of back and forth in the last several years since then due to complications with the status of the death penalty in Kansas. Oh, okay. 
because it was like not constitutional, constitutional, right? Not constitutional. Right. So, but in January of 2022, their death sentences were once again upheld. So the cars are currently on death row. In the wake of the heinous terror that was the Wichita massacre, family and loved ones of the victims have done all sorts of things to honor them as they were in life. Wichita State University offers a scholarship called the Ann Walenta Music Scholarship slash Fellowship. Wow. Her husband and two kids set this up in her honor, and her husband said of the scholarship, quote, year after year, more students will learn to share the joy she received from music, end quote. Mm. So that's how they honored Ann. Yeah. Every year from 2001 until 2021, Kansas State University hosted the Brad Haka Memorial Golf Tournament. <laughs> the tournament was such a success from the very first time it was hosted that it turned into an event aimed at raising money for scholarships for students. Mm, wow. Every year, 12 to 15 students would receive scholarships in Brad's memory. Wow. Which is great. That's great. Like Brad's family, Jason's family also hosted a golf tournament up until 2021 in Jason's honor. A camp was founded in Heather's memory that gives children from the ages of 7 to 18 who are blind or visually impaired the opportunity to experience the magic of summer camp. Oh, my gosh. We actually <laughs> have a listener, this Shelby, who suggested this episode, and she actually spent a few summers volunteering at Heather's camp. Oh, my gosh. Shelby gave us permission to share what she'd written about this. So Shelby's sister was a student, and she was part of the Delta Gamma sorority at Wichita State years ago. For their philanthropy, they worked at Heather's camp, since Heather was also a Delta Gamma sister. Hmm. Uh, Shelby's sister recommended that she should complete her volunteering hours that she needed for high school at Heather's camp. And it was a life-changing experience. And so Shelby recommends volunteering there uh, because it's a truly wonderful place full of so much good. Hmm. So one final really great thing that came out of this story is that the two surviving victims of the Wichita massacre— Holly G. and Andrew Schreiber found great support and friendship in each other as they walked through the horrifying trial together. Yeah. You know, they had to sit there and relive their oh, awful gosh. experiences. Yeah. After the trial was over, the two began dating and they actually got married in 2004. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of this story, we're still left with the heavy sadness brought on by such a senseless crime spree. Mm -hmm. But the people who lost their lives in the Wichita massacre have all lived on in such positive ways, even more than 20 years later. Hmm. As a little closing note, we'll be sharing a link to Heather's camp in the show notes in case anyone is interested in volunteering or donating. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Yeah. And that is what I have for you today. Oh, wow. Yeah, you really... Uh took us to the ringer on that one i feel like i talked really fast that whole time <laughs> sorry guys you might have to play me on yeah. like half time it's <laughs> like i just gotta get through this one it's so terrible that one that one was definitely rough um but i will say i just think there's um there's something about this story that like my stomach churned several times mm. and um it it, it just kind of like shows you some of the worst in, in people, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm also just really thankful that like crazy miracles, if you want to use that word, yeah, just happened enough that like they were pretty like speedily caught. It didn't take oh, super yeah. long. Also, I mean, less than 24 hours after they started their, their crime at Jason's house. Yeah. I mean, credit to the police department in Wichita, right. like who were on it. Well, so and they noticed quick. every detail. Yes. And I feel like we've had a couple of stories where that's been not the uh, case. Not great. Yeah. We have one of those next week. So. Oh, great. <laughs> and we've also had some stories where it's been kind of suspect and then it turned out to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And in this one, like, Everybody that was supposed to do the right thing did. Right. And that that gives me a little bit of like, okay. A little hope as, for humanity. As rough as this story is, it's <clears throat> rough because of two people. Not yeah. because of someone else who made a mistake or who unknowingly aided and abetted, you mm -hmm. know, for longer than they would have reasonably. Like, even the Carr brothers' friends inevitably yeah. were like, oh, forget these guys. This is <laughs> like, not right. This is not good. And and yeah. so they were willing to throw them under the bus because that's where they belonged. Right. Um, so 
yeah, I have still plenty more feelings to process after hearing all that because that got heavy and dark very quickly. I think quickly. The, the brutality of it is so is so indescribable yes. to me. I can't. I was as like non-descriptive as I could be on mm-hmm. purpose mm-hmm. because just of how how unbelievably brutal. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and I would call it a miracle that. Holly got shot in the head and mm-hmm. a tiny hair clip from the mm-hmm. dollar store that she probably didn't even think anything of when she put it exactly where she put it. Right. And I mean, considering the fact that she'd been being viciously beaten and tortured all night and it stayed in the exact place it would need to stay in. Right. And this tiny bullet hit that. Man. That is unbelievable to yeah. me. And she lived. Had she not lived, had there, had there been no survivors of that night, who knows what else they would have done. Right. Who knows? Right. Because they, I mean, they could have rampaged for days after that. Even mm-hmm. this whole spree <sighs> did last an entire week, from oh, start man. to from oh, when the yeah, time okay, they attacked okay. Andrew Schreiber's December eighth yes. through the fifteenth. Yes. So actually, when this airs, it'll be the fifteenth, the day that they were caught. Wow. The twenty-two year anniversary of them being caught. <sighs> wow. Yeah. It's. It, this is a very. I'm actually surprised because I haven't seen a ton of people cover this one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a really huge, it should be a huge story. Right. Well, and it's not so far from here either. Yeah. We're in, in, in Omaha. We are not too far from Wichita. I have friends from Wichita. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of surprised that I haven't heard about this one at all before. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm not because I don't know these things like you do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's this is this is a crazy story. And, uh, man, I'm glad that this is not one that ends with a lot of mystery. We Mm -hmm. actually know what's happened. We know who is at fault and we're just kind of waiting to see how it actually totally comes to a conclusion. Yeah. And I mean, they may be on death row for 20 more years. Sure. You know, they they might die before they are eligible Mm -hmm. to be put to death by lethal injection. Mm -hmm. The laws could change again. You know, I I think they do still have some appeals left. I don't think that they've run out of appeals. So Mm. I think they can appeal the, the sentencing. They can't, they cannot appeal the ruling. I don't think they did try at one point to say that they weren't given a fair trial because they were tried together. Mm -hmm. And there was like a, like a reasonable conversation Mm. about that, but it really didn't end up changing the outcome. Like there was just way too much compounding evidence that it's like, okay, we can do this whole thing again, I guess, but like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So charges were just Mm -hmm. like, these are upheld. Yeah. Y'all did it. (laughs) And we know. Wow. Yeah. That was a way oversimplification of that just for the record. But yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, for everybody who's listened, uh, thank you so much for listening to the unusual unsettling and unsavory story today. Definitely. Uh, unsavory mm. beyond belief oh, yeah. in so many moments. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, just once again, lots of feelings, lots of feelings coming through. Um, if you haven't already, please make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on your favorite listening platform um, and make sure that you leave a five-star review that helps um, other people find similar podcasts like ours. Also, you can follow us on social media on TikTok at this one is a doozy and on Instagram at this one is a doozy. You can also find us on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And then also, people can connect with us uh, over email, this one is a doozy at gmail.com. And they can also connect with us uh, even more directly. And how can they do that, my love? On Patreon. You can go to the website or on the app and you can search for this one's a doozy podcast. Or you can click the link in our Instagram bio and Facebook about me section. So, yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, that is all we have for you today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week for another doozy. Bye.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.